Opinions are my own. Ida's receipts are non-negotiable. No intro. Let's just get right into it. We don't have any business promotion tonight. The focus is Ida B. Wells. Adamantium Ida. I coin her respectfully. Ida, you put in the work and did not get the recognition you deserve. But by the galaxy and the universe, you gonna get some respect on your name tonight. A full-length and unpromising black first dedication and human sacrifice in the clear and present danger of sticking a 50-foot harpoon into the crusted and callous crock and heart of white supremacy. All while dismantling the anti-black bestial-based megalomaniacal masochistic mainstream media, a.k.a. the white is right press. Superhuman courage, strong-willed, solid like adamantium steel. The fearless, headstrong spirit of Wolverine and the former slaves. If Wolverine was a real person, he will respect her. This stature and confidence was essential and required during one of the most vicious times of racism, white supremacy, where the foundational black Americans were and even now treated worse than dogs. It is imperative we acknowledge Ida B. Wells as being the spearhead of the black empowerment movement and the nucleus of civil rights. When the black brute focused anti-black white media launched sadistic attacks on innocent black men, labeling them as raping animals, Adamantium Ida stood up. She wasn't no okra. She wasn't no Jack the Clown jump for Joy Reid or a Lonnie Blackman ain't no good tugboat. She wasn't none of these mainstream mammies and bedwincher bedbuck plantation covert coons. She didn't use her platform to bellyache and complain. She had a platform. She had a platform of power. Not to weep and beg. She wasn't your half-talking nitwicks on The View or The Real. She was the real deal. Ida stood on it. And she stood up to the most dangerous white supremacists ever. While the Scooby-Doo scare Negroes told her to be quiet. And she stood with her life on the line. It was Ida B. Wells who forged the modern-day civil rights movement. I said it. The true, the true co-founder of the NAACP. Before King. Before Malcolm X. Before Medgar Evers, before Adam Clayton Powell, before Rosa, before the Panthers, before the Deacons of Defense, before Fannie, Leigh Humer, before Fannie Lou Hamer, before Thurgood Marshall, before Messy Jesse and 5K1 FBI spy rat bastards Al Sharpton, it was Ida B. Wells, solid, unapologetic and fearless, Adamantium Ida. I look at the work almost as a coroner of justice, using a scalpel as her pen, cutting out the lies, analyzing the truth and presenting it on the table, whether you like it or not. The work was miserable and disheartening, but she did it. She is above criticism. You cannot criticize her because you do not have the adamantium nuts to do 1% of the work she did. Ida Bell Wells Barnett was born in the year of our Lord, July 16th, 1862. Ida was a foundational black American investigative journalist, educator, and an early leader in the civil rights movement. She was one of the founders of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. This is not the same energy as before. The NAACP does not have the same caliber of people. You may have a few, maybe, a big maybe. These Negroes ain't nothing like Ida, let's be very clear. And she had to fight them when she founded it. When the NAACP was created, they tried to write her out of her history. I'm going to go as far to say that W.E.B. Du Bois was afraid of her. And we'll get to that later. Ida B. Wells was born as the first child of Jane Wells and Elizabeth Lizzie Warrington. James Wells' father was a white man who impregnated a black slave named Peggy. 
Before dying, Wells' father brought him, aged at eight, he was 18, 18 years old, to Holly Springs, Mississippi, to become a carpenter's apprentice, where he developed a skill and worked as a hired out slave living in town. Lizzie's experience as an enslaved person was quite different. One of 10 children born on the plantation of Virginia, Lizzie was sold away from her family and siblings and tried without success to locate her family following the Civil War. Before the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, Wells' parents were slaves to an architect and the family lived in the now called uh, Bowling Gatewood House. My apologies. Wells' father, James Well, became a trustee of Shaw College, which is now Rust College. He refused to vote for the do-nothing Dems during the period of Reconstruction. He became a member of the Loyal League and was known as a race man for his involvement in his politics and his commitment to the Republican Party. He founded a successful carpentry business in Holly Springs in 1867, and his wife Lizzie became known as a famous cook. So she had parents that were solid. Her dad was outspoken as well. He was involved in the politics. He was probably trying to get black folks on code and get them involved and get rights for them. Ida B. Wells was one. of She was one of eight children born to James and Lizzie Wells, and she enrolled in a historically black liberal arts college, Russ College in Holly Springs. In September 1878, tragedy struck the Wells family. Both of her parents died due to the yellow fever epidemic and one of her siblings died. Wells had been visiting her grandmother's farm near Holly Springs at the time it was spared. Now, I'm assuming her grandmother owned the land. Note that quite a few black people began to buy and own land in the South after slavery. Another reason why the sick lynching parties grew jealous and felt the need to regain white supremacy. By 1910, records showed that more black Americans owned land than ever before in the history of the United States. Over 14 million acres of land was owned by approximately 210,000 black people, leading some historians to refer to this period as the height of black land ownership. To help freed slaves deal with the starvation, housing issues and medical aid, Congress created the Freedmen's Bureau in 1865. A significant number of freed slaves were settled in Georgia and South Carolina. Approximately 40,000 freed slaves were settled in over 400,000 acres of land. However, their claims were contested by rice plantation farmers who claimed to own the land after Lincoln's assassination in April 1865. The presidency was assumed by Vice President Andrew Johnson, who overturned special field order orders number 15. So they stole the land. This was our 40 acres and a mule. Don't get this confused with the Dawes Act. We had several laws and things that came from the Constitution that we were supposed to get our land. So don't let anybody tell you any different. Did you know that in 1860, the South, not the United States, was the largest economy in the world? Due to cotton, cotton was more important than steel. Mississippi was the nation's leading cotton producer. Land was cheap and the market was great. They depended on free labor. I used to wonder why this state was so brutal and why black and slave folk were scared of being sold to the deep south. Well, we know why. Mississippi was bitter. This state had more black people than others, with black folks being 40% of the population. So figure that because of the small amount of people that own most of the wealth, you may have a few hundred white men, if that, and they owned all the wealth. And a couple rural white rural white folks way out in the sticks, they own maybe one or two enslaved folks or so. So let's take that you have a man and a wife owned by one family. And, you know, a lot of times they didn't want to kill a black person because that's their money. But let's say they are to be freed. That's going to hurt your pockets. They will resent that. 
and being you mistreated them, you now live in resent and fear. So that's probably one of the causes of the lynchings as well. We'll get to that later. Now, for anybody that does not know, Holly Springs is in northern Mississippi, which is about an hour away from Tupelo and about an hour away from Memphis as well. Following the funerals of Ida B. Wells' parents and brother, friends and relatives decided that the five remaining Wells children should be separated and sent to foster homes. Ida B. Wells wouldn't have it. To keep her younger siblings together as a family, she found work as a teacher in a black elementary school in Holly Springs. Her paternal grandmother, Peggy Wells, along with other friends and relatives, stayed with her siblings and cared for them during the week while Wells was teaching. But when Peggy Wells died from a stroke and her sister Eugenia died, Wells accepted the invitation of her aunt Fanny and moved with her two youngest sisters to Memphis, Tennessee in 1883. Later moving with some of her siblings to Memphis, Tennessee, she found better pay as a teacher. Soon, Wells co-owned and wrote for the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight newspaper. Her reporting covered incidents of racial segregation and inequality. So here you have someone who has lost her parents, lost her brother. She didn't become a scared, weeping Negro. She went to work and she put herself in business. Let's note that. In 1889, Wells became a partner in the Free Speech and Headlight. And this was later on, but the paper was also owned by Reverend R. Nightingale, the pastor of uh, the pastor, the pastor of Beale Street Baptist Church. He counseled his large congregation to subscribe to the paper and flourish, allowing her to leave her position as an educator. Notice that the black church, not like these poverty pimps today, was instrumental in black empowerment, black economics. In 1892, three of her friends were lynched, Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell and Henry Stewart. These three men were owners of the People's Grocery Company and their small grocery had taken away customers from competing white competing with white businesses. A group of angry white men thought they would eliminate the competition, so they attacked the People's Grocery. But the owners fought back, shooting one of the attackers. The owners of the People's Grocery was arrested, but a lynch mob broke into the jail, dragged the brothers down, down away from town, and murdered every all three of them. Again, this atrocity galvanized her mettle. She wrote in a free speech, quote, the city of Memphis has demonstrated that neither character nor standing avails the Negro if he dares to protect himself against a white man or become his rival. There is nothing we could do about the lynching now as we are outnumbered and without arms. The white mob could help itself to ammunition without pay. But the order is rigidly enforced against the selling of guns to Negroes. There is therefore only one thing left to do. Save our money and leave town, which we, we which we neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white white folks. So basically, when you look at that, they weren't even selling black folks guns. And they'd give the guns away, they deputized them, they'd give the guns away to white folks, the same thing that's happening now. They deputize these people to wipe us out. And when they get into the courtroom, a lot of them guys go free. Many people took the advice Wells penned in her paper and left town. Other members of the black community organized a boycott of white owned businesses, white owned businesses to try to stem the terror of lynchings. Her newspaper office was destroyed as a result of the muckrack raking and investigative journalism she pursued after the killing of her friends. She could not return to Memphis, so she moved to Chicago. 
She continued her blistering journalistic attacks on Southern injustices, being especially active in investigating, exposing the fraudulent reasons given to lynch black men, which by now had become a common occurrence. Now, prior to the three brothers being taken from the jail and being lynched, the dominant society arrested over 20 people. When the three were lynched and no one would serve justice, Ida took to the pen and told black folks they should leave. Now, this was the this was the Middle Western migration into Kansas, Oklahoma. Hundreds disposed of their property and they left. The power structure was angry. She understood the economic and political strategy that was used to intimidate black folks. And she said, you don't have to stay and take this crap. Leave. And the white folks panicked. Black folks, you know, leaving. It caused their pockets to get tight. 6,000 people left and they went into the Oklahoma Territory. You know, this is an area that was under underdeveloped. Wasn't nothing really popping out there. And um, black folks got a popping, as you've seen in Tulsa. And they hated on them for that. But that, that came later. But Ida had been there before. Now, for those that stayed in Memphis, Ida created a boycott towards the new trolley system. The city asked Ida and her newspaper to get black folks back on the trolley. Ida told them to tell them to go to hell. Just to give you an idea of what type of a caliber of a woman that we're dealing with here. Now, as I said before, her parents were a different kind of people. You wonder how did where did she get this courage from? Where did she get this? Where did she get this adamantium heart? She got this from somewhere. Now, during this time, I'm not sure what states or cities she traveled for the lynching investigations, but when they destroyed her newspaper businesses and put a price on her head, she stayed away from the South for many years. So that's something that I'm going to have to look into myself. I did a little bit of research, actually quite a bit. So I might jump around a little bit. But the Guardian quotes by the time Wells turned 25, she was the co-owner and editor of the Free Speech and Headlight, a local black newspaper. A platform she used to skewer racial inequality. Then came the people's grocery lynching. Her friends was lynched because Billy Bob was jealous. I'm quoting here. Now, no one was convicted of the crime. She denounced it in print, armed herself with a pistol and spent months traveling alone in the South, researching more than 700 lynchings from the previous decade. Let's note the adamantium Ida. She believed in economic empowerment. She partnered with newspapers. You wasn't going to give her no TLC deal. You was going to be a co-owner when dealing with Ida. Keep in mind, Ida was using vocabulary that white folks were not accustomed to. They were not used to a direct, brutal account of writing. People were not used to hearing white women and their sexual access with black men. This was taboo. They tried to make it look like she was crazy. So she had to go through a lot during this time because nobody really wanted to support her. People were terrified. They weren't used to this. People were used to being scared, plantation minded Negroes during that time. So she got a lot of kickback from other people. And we'll get to, we'll get to that. Some 4000 African-Americans were lynched in 12 southern states between 1877 and 1950. According to what? According to the Equal Justice Initiative's 2015 report lynching in America. Some were witnessed by big crowds who brought children and picnic baskets as if it was a public entertainment. Now, it was probably well over 4000 people. Now, keep in mind, this was almost like a football game. They announced this stuff in church for you so-called Christians. They announced this stuff in church. They had they had picnics and food, all of this. Now. Wells, great grandfather, I'm, I'm sorry, Wells, great granddaughter, Michelle Duster, which is she's an author and a public speaker, says, 
Quote, they would torture people before they were killed and dismember them afterwards and pass around the body parts. It was shocking to me that people would take bones as souvenirs. The more I learned about the level of violence, the more I appreciated what it took for her to do what she did. I am just amazed. Now, let me say this. Black people have never done anything like this as our culture in, in this country to anyone. We never tortured people all day and burned them and cut their body parts and kept the body parts and sold them. This isn't a part of our culture. Ida B. Wells visited places where people had been hanged, shot, beaten, burned, burned alive, drowned, mutilated. She examined photos of victims hanging from trees as mobs looked on. Poured over local newspaper accounts, took sworn statements from eyewitnesses and on occasion even hired private investigators. It was astoundingly courageous work in an era of Jim Crow segregation and in which women did not have the vote. Hannah Jones, who writes for the New York Times magazine, says, quote, there was no protection from the law for a black for a black woman who was going into the territories where black people had been stolen from jail and lynched with the help of law enforcement. Underline that law enforcement. They had everything to do with these lynchings. These places would have been hostile to a black person questioning these communities at all. But think about the types of emotion in a community that has just lynched someone and strung their body up for public display. And then to have a black woman come in there asking questions. One has to say, would I have the courage to do that? There was no help that was going to come for you. There was no protection from the law. Black folks didn't even have a, a lot of legal rights, and they certainly didn't have much protection from law enforcement. Now, just me doing this, it kind of brings a heavy heart because I'm imagining Ida out there with her paper and pistol, not knowing what will happen. The uncertainty, you know, is really heartbreaking when you sit back and think about it. But Ida's heart didn't break. Lionheart, adamantium Ida, heart of steel. I'm starting to wonder, was she even scared or did that fear just dissolve over time due to the mission? The average black person in that time wouldn't do it. I thought about her being out there alone, someone trying to harm her. But another thing crossed my mind, spirit. Even in the streets today, people could take one look at you and they know not to play. It's not that you impose. They just know they could tell who they could slap around, and who they cannot. And I'm wondering, you know. Most white people might have been amazed at her nerve. I don't think people were accustomed in that time to dealing with that kind of nerve. So maybe they felt their life could be, you know, on the line if they played with her. Ida knew warfare. She likely knew this. And she was willing to die. And she was willing to kill you if you tried to kill her. She showed that on the train incident when they tried to throw her off the train. She bit the guy, grabbed him. I mean, these, like I said, these were times where they burn you alive for doing less. You know, you could get smart with a white person and they string you up. So um, the white supremacists, they probably knew it. You know, are you willing to lose your life playing with me? I got this pole on me. And if you play with me, you meet your maker right now. You could be your choice. You could go. You could go to God or you go to the devil. You could meet your maker right now. And, you know, that's my analysis of the climate. You know, um, I just think that she just had a lot of, you know, I think that nerve, some of that was almost supernatural. I think some of that courage had to have been supernatural because she was going in areas where, I mean, it ain't no guarantee that you're going to, you know, they might just see you and be like, oh, this is a black woman. You can't vote. You're a black brute. They could have raped her, did anything to her and said, oh, well, you know, she was just a prostitute or whatever. I mean, that's what they used to do. 
These are the things they used to do to black women and men and children. I am going to say something you may not like. This is why when minorities and non-foundation, non-foundational black folks or non-whites try to compare our plight to theirs and talk down on us. And that comes up short every time you ain't suffer like Ida. You ain't had to go through reports about black men and women being lynched, raped and had to see signs that told you that you weren't a human being. And every facet of life is your daily poison instead of your daily bread. You ain't had your friends lynched in public and had to, you know, leave the South and not return until 30 years later. Did you have that? Put some respect on her name. We ain't like you. We different. We ain't better than you, but we different, different spirit. Y'all wouldn't have survived it. Let's keep it. Let's keep it real. We talking about Ida here, so we going to tell the damn truth. Y'all would have perished here in the southern demonic realm of the black genocide. We are special people. If y'all would have had half of our ancestral spirit and strength, you wouldn't need us to set the stone in the benefits of the civil rights era that you receive unearned benefits for. My ancestors did that. Foundational black Americans, native blacks, the descendants of slaves. Thank you, Ida. Thank you, King, Malcolm, Medgar Evers, C.J. Walker, Nat Turner. I'm even throwing John Brown because he put in the work for the slaves. John Horse. The former slaves did that. Everyone in this country owes them respect and reverence, especially immigrants. Every civil rights law in this country was built off the descendants of the slaves. No one else. Who else? Name 30 people. Ida did 50 people's work. We got over 50 people. And I ain't talking Okra or Michael Jordan or Messy Jesse. They don't count and rats don't count either. And Ida did it and didn't get the honor she should have. And we going to put some respect on her name tonight. I'm going to make sure that extra respect, all three of it. In the 1890s, Wells documented lynching in the United States through her indictment called Southern Whores. Lynch law in all its phases. Investigating frequent claims of whites that lynchings were reserved for black criminals only. Sounds like the Cosby and Kells cases, right? No Harpo, no Kevin Spacey out on his victim Spacey. Does this sound familiar? Is the media covering the black women that was assaulted by Harpo? I don't think they are. I'm just asking questions. Wells exposed lynching as a barbaric practice of whites in the South used to intimidate and oppress African-Americans who created economic and political competition and a subsequent threat of loss of power for whites. A white mob destroyed her newspaper office and presses as her investigative reporting was carried nationally in black owned newspapers. So she had a following and Billy Bob didn't like that. Subjected to continued threats, Wells left Memphis for Chicago. She married and had a family while continuing her work, writing, speaking and organizing for civil rights and the women's movement for the rest of her life. Wells was outspoken regarding her beliefs as a black female activist and faced regular public disapproval. A skilled and persuasive speaker. She traveled nationally, entered, you know, she went all around the world. She was requested around the world. She wasn't no local joker. She hit the road. And I'm sure the scared Negroes and coons didn't like her. That's what that meant. Regular public disapproval. So you had us. So, so let's get down to this a little bit before we move on. Regular public disapproval. So these are people that was around her. These weren't just white people. These were Negroes people on the Bagland podcast. These were black folks doing this. 
These were cowards and coons, scared Negroes and coons. They didn't like her because she was willing to go against Billy Bob. Now, we're going to go in depth. But remember, I got a million sources, so everything jumps around a little bit. This is for you to do your own search. I did the research. Before Rosa Parks, on May 4th, the year of our Lord, 1884, Ida sued the railroad in 1883 in September. A train conductor with the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad offered, uh, ordered Wells to give up her seat in the first class ladies car. And they told her to move to the smoking car, which was already crowded. Now, let's put this in perspective. The previous year, the Supreme Court had ruled against the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1875, which had banned racial discrimination in public accommodations. So this verdict supported railroad companies that chose to racially segregate their passengers. So what this means is a federal law was illegally ruled against. Is that what that means? The Supreme Court said we are going to override the protections for black folks again. Now, I did some research in the archives and I found the original suit. And she was in Memphis traveling to Woodstock, Tennessee. I'm going to read you the entire suit now. This was in 18. Let's look at the whole suit. I'm going to read you the whole transcript. I tell you it's going to be a long one. But we're going to put some respect on her name. Extra. In the year of our Lord, 1883. Ida B. Wells traveled by train from Memphis to Woodstock, Tennessee, where she was working as a teacher. The conductor asked Wells to move to a different car because of her race. When she refused, she was removed from the train and sued the railroad company in 1884. The court decided in her favor and ordered the railroad company to pay up, which they did. But they also appealed the case to the Tennessee Supreme Court in 1885, which is documented here. Wells was represented by an African-American attorney, Thomas Frank Castles. The state Supreme Court decided in favor of the railroad, reversing the earlier decision. Here's a transcript of Ida B. Wells' testimony. On the trial of this case, the following evidence was introduced by the plaintiff. The plaintiff who said, quote, I am 20 years of age and unmarried. My profession is that of a school teacher. And during September 1883, I was teaching a public school at Woodstock, a nation on defendant's road 10 miles north of memphis my salary was 30 dollars a month on 15th september 1883 i was in memphis and started to return to woodstock took a seat in the rear car of defendant's passenger train that left memphis about four o'clock that afternoon when i went in the car some half hour before leaving time the ticket office was not open i afterwards went out and bought a ticket which reads as follows Chesapeake, Ohio, and Southwestern Railroad. One continuous trip, Memphis to Woodstock. Now, that's the ticket she bought. Now, she says, I returned to my car in the rear. I returned to my seat in the rear car. My apologies. There were only two passenger cars in, uh, in the train. Two passenger. Uh, there were only two passenger cars in the train. Two passenger car and one baggage car. I saw one drunken white man in the front coach. I had before this time ridden in said rear car once about July 1883. Rougher people ride in the front than in the rear car. There was no person in, on the seat with me and I was the only colored person in the car. The car was not crowded. When a mile or so from Memphis, the conductor came collecting tickets. He took mine, looked at me and returned it to me saying he could not accept it in that car and passed on. 
I was reading a newspaper at the time directly. The con the conductor returned to me and said that I would have to go to the coach in front and I was in the wrong car that he had the rear car for white people alone and that color people must ride in the Ford coach. To this, I replied that I would not ride in the Ford car, that I had a seat and intended to keep it. He said to me that he would treat me like a lady, but I must go into the other car. And I replied that if he wished to treat me like a lady, he would leave me alone. When we now let's stop this for a minute. Does this sound like a scared eye bucking Negro to you? I'm asking a question. Does Ida B. Wells sound like a scared, terrified, plantation minded Negro? No, she does not. She told that I'm not getting out my damn seat. And if you want to treat me like a lady, you will leave me alone. All right. When we reached Frazier's, the first station, the train stopped and the conductor came again to me and said he would again ask me politely to go into the other car. And I refused to do so. He then took hold of me to carry me to the other car. I resisted him holding on to my seat when he called for help and two white passengers helped him to carry me out. I resisted all the time and never consented to go. My dress was torn in the struggle. One sleeve was almost torn off. Everybody in the car seemed to sympathize with the conductor and were against me. The conductor had carried my bag and parasol, etc., into the forward coach before carrying me out. And when they got me on the platform between the cars, I got off the train, refusing to go into the forward coach. The conductor asked me not to get off, but I said that I would not ride in the forward coach. There were several colored passengers in the car. I paid 30 cents for my ticket and still still hold it. The train was known as the Covington Accommodation and run between Covington and Memphis. I also noticed smoking going on in the forward car. This car was used for colored men and white men, too. There was never any smoking and drunkenness in the rear coach, and sometimes colored people also rode in it. Now, and J.H. Clover's a colored man who said, I am a minister. In September 1883, I was holding a camp meeting at Lucy Station on Defenders on Defendant's Road, which is 15 miles north of Memphis. I was on the train on 15th September 1883 when plaintiff was ejected from the rear car. I was riding in the forward coach. There may have been three coaches, certainly not less than two. The people in said forward coach where where I was was were rough. They were smoking, talking and drinking very rough. It was no fit place for a lady. There were no white ladies. So they wanted this sister to go in a smoking car. In a place that was not fit for a lady, guys drinking, cussing, smoking, and she said, hell no, I'm not going to go. I asked again, everyone on the Bagland podcast, does she sound like a scared Negro? No. Keep in mind the time. This was way before Rosa Parks. This was way before Rosa Parks. So 1883, she was removed from the car. 1884, she sued the railroad, won $500 on December 24th, 1884. 1885, the Supreme Court, white supremacist court overturned it. This was before Plessy versus Ferguson. Let's keep that in mind. Ida said, hell no. When Wells refused to give up her seat, the conductor and the two men dragged her out of the car. Wells gained publicity in Memphis when she wrote a newspaper article for The Living Way, a black church weekly, about her treatment on the train. 
So she, you know, once again, she's using her pen again. In Memphis, she hired a black attorney to sue the railroad. When the lawyer was paid off by the railroad, she hired a white attorney. She won her case on December 24th, 1884, when the local circuit court granted her a $500 award. The railroad company appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court, which reversed the lower court's ruling in 1887. It concluded. Now, listen to this. This was the conclusion. We think it is evident that the purpose of the defendant in error was to harass with a view to this suit and that her persistence was not in good faith to obtain a comfortable seat for the short ride. You may have to rewind that again. So they blamed her for paying to obtain a seat. What that means is she had no good faith to get a seat for which she paid for. And she is just trying to give the court a hard time. So this is how they was thinking. You pay for a first class seat, but you must move. Why? Because we said so. And because you are one of those uppity Negroes who won't move. And the fact that you are standing up and telling us, hell no, you are a problem. We can't have the problem, Negroes. We cannot have nor tolerate confident Negroes. So we are going to use white supremacy right in this court to tell you that you Negroes don't get a seat you paid for. And we have the Supreme Court and the railroad to back us. You should be grateful that we didn't string you up or have our fellow Klansmen to pay you an abduction visit. We do this all the time and we were just being nice. That's their logic. That's what they were saying. Let's keep in mind that Reconstruction was 1865 to 1877. Reconstruct. Construct what? Social construct. For who? Is the South saying we need to reconstruct our system of racism, white, racism, white supremacy? Are they doing that? Well, in 1877, the do nothing Dems got the government to remove all of the federal troops from the South. They had power in every southern state. Blacks were still elected to local offices throughout the 1880s, but their voting was suppressed for state and national elections. So locally, you could get a little bit popping, but across the board, you couldn't. This is some of the games that they played to support racism and white supremacy. Now, the, dim, the do nothing Dems, they passed laws to make voter registration and electoral rules more restrictive, with the result that political participation by most blacks began to, discre begin to decrease. Between 1890 and 1910, 10 of the 11 former, former Confederate states, starting with Mississippi, passed new constitutions or amendments that effectively disenfranchised most blacks through a combination of poll taxes, literacy and comprehension tests, and residency and record keeping requirement grandfather clauses. Now, the grandfather clauses temporarily permitted some illiterate rights to, to vote, but gave no relief to most blacks. So those clauses gave them an affirmative action boost. So when people start talking about, oh, well, you know, white folks, they never got no affirmative action. My ass. That was your affirmative action right there. Can't even read and you could vote. We'll get to that later. I'm going to get on that later. Now, Wells was ordered to pay the cost. Her reaction to the highest court decision revealed her strong convictions on civil rights and religious faith. As she responded, quote, I felt so disappointed because I had hoped such great things from my suit for my people. Oh, God, is there no justice in this land for us? Now, notice that the 1875 act was not enforced. Now, she would now she would have won the case. Things could have been different. 
that adversity could have been the fire for her to light the forest. So when minority groups start talking about their plights and, oh, you're just like us and our lives is just like yours. No, let's compare. You are not like native blacks. You didn't go through what we did. We set the tone for the Supreme Court and justice battles. You're just a recipient, a recipient of the benefits. Now, I'm going to read you what Frederick Douglass had to say about Ida B. Wells. Dear Miss Wells. Let me give you thanks for your faithful paper on the lynch abomination now generally practiced against colored people in the South. There has been no word equal to it in convincing power. I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison. You give us what you know and testify from actual knowledge. You have dealt with the facts with cool, painstaking fidelity and left those naked and uncontradicted facts to speak for themselves. Brave woman, you have done your people and mine a service which can neither be weighed nor measured. If the American conscience were only half alive, if the American church and clergy were only half Christianized, if American moral sensibility were not hardened by persistent infliction of outrage and crime against colored people, a scream of horror, shame and indignation would rise to heaven wherever your pamphlet shall be read. But alas, even crime has power to reproduce itself and create conditions favorable to its own existence. It sometimes seems we are deserted by earth and heaven, yet we must still think, speak and work and trust in the power of a merciful God for final deliverance. Very truly and gratefully yours, Frederick Douglass, Cedar Hill, Anacostia, D.C., 1895. That was Frederick Douglass putting self-indebted respect on her name. That's Frederick Douglass bending the knee in reverence to the work she put in. Why? Because even he knew that he didn't have the adamantium nuts to do what she did. The Southern Horrors Report was a Mike Tyson overhand right. It was the knockout punch to the pedophile raping white savages. There was nothing like this on the planet. If you ever seen the movie Time to Kill, you know what I'm talking about. This was normal and common. There were many a Reese Taylor that had no justice ever. These little girls never got any justice. Now, Ida B. Wells was in England in 1894 when she heard that white Southerners had put a black woman in San Antonio, Texas, in a barrel with nails driven through the sides and rolled it down a hill until she died. The 31-year-old Wells, a black Southerner, was seasoned to the whispered phenomenon, phenomenon of mob torture and murder that went by the shorthand lynching. In fact, she was abroad on a speaking tour denouncing it. Nonetheless, she shed tears over the latest outrage upon my people. Now, her call to speak out against lynching had come just two years earlier when a Memphis mob, I said this before, murdered her close friend and neighbor. The incident started as a dispute among white and black boys playing marbles, but quickly evolved into an excuse to murder Moss, a successful businessman who was drawing patrons away. So mind you, when Ida was speaking, things were still going on. I know I went back a couple of different times, but I'm getting different sources. Now, Texas has a horrific history in lynching, especially burning. They like to burn people. Now, look at this. In 1895, Wells married the editor of one of Chicago's early black newspapers. She wrote, quote, I was married in the city of Chicago to attorney F.L. Barnett and retired to what I thought was the privacy of a home. 
Now, she did not stay retired long and continue writing and organizing. In 1906, she joined with W.E.B. Du Bois and others to further the Niagara movement. And she was one of the two African-American women to sign the call to form the NAACP in 1909. Ida B. Wells co-founded the NAACP. Don't get it twisted. She was a founder. Although Ida B. Wells was one of the founding members of the NAACP, she was among the few black leaders to explicitly oppose Booker T. Washington and his strategies. As a result, she was viewed as one of the most radical of the so-called radicals who organized the NAACP and marginalized from positions within his leadership. As late as 1930, she became disgusted by the nominees of the major partners parties to the to the state legislator. So Wells decided to run for the Illinois state legislator, which made her one of the first black women to run for public office in the United States. A year later, she passed away from a lifetime crusading for justice. And this is another source I got from Duke Duke. Uh, I think it was Duke University. So just just a little quick analysis here. She was getting on. She was getting on Booker T. Washington's case. She was getting on some of the NAACP's people's case. And what probably happened is she said, y'all niggas going a little too soft. You need to go a little harder in the paint. So they called her a radical. See, this is that same old plantation old talk that, you know, back in the day when a lot of the young folks was tired of being subverted and being mistreated. Sometimes you had some of these old plantation Negroes that said, you got to you got to calm down, go home. It's the same thing you hear today. You have some of the church plantation Negroes telling you you should go home and don't worry about it. Just go home and pray. And Ida B. Wells said you could kiss my ass. We need to go hard. On October 26th, the year of our Lord, 1892, she published her research on lynching in a pamphlet called Southern Whores. I said this before. But she examined many accounts of lynchings due to the alleged rape of white women. She concluded the Southerners cried rape as an excuse to hide their real reasons for lynchings. Black economic progress, which threatened white Southerners with competition and white ideas of enforcing black second class status in the society. Let me just get off subject a little bit here. We're talking about cotton. We're talking about land. Mississippi was popping. Mississippi was one of the biggest spots for cotton. The biggest spot for cotton. So you had black folks that own land. So they were they were going from place to place and quote me on this if I'm wrong, but black folks was trying to sell, you know, their crops and their cotton and stuff like that. And you had you had people out there that wouldn't sell them certain stuff. They would they would find out little ways where they try to charge them more. There was some profit margin fraud and everything trying to make sure the black folks don't get nothing. So black economic progress was a contemporary issue in the South. And in many states, whites worked to suppress black progress. In this period, at the turn of the century, southern states, starting with Mississippi in 1890, passed laws to disenfranchise. Now, I read the whole report in entirety, and I must say it's one of the most receipt and thought invoking pieces of work I ever read in my life. And it's a sign of the times. The same white sex predators of, the, of, of, of back then, they're no different than now. Jailed a suspected black brute, let Billy Bob and Sarah go. I hope everyone's listening overstands the overt danger of publishing a report like this. This was direct defiance. 
This was equivalent to Pearl Harbor. This was an invasion on blonde and present and her clan robe husband. Chicago Tribune quotes as a journalist and newspaper publisher, Wells Barnett traveled throughout the South documenting and writing about the unjust lynchings of black men. She chronicled each case, keeping records, pulling police files and interviewing witnesses. Her Memphis newspaper offices were vandalized and she was run out of the town. Still, she went on to publish Southern Whores, a long form article that proved lynching was a form of racial violence aimed at ambitious black Southerners. So when you start hearing, you know, all these, uh, all of this is propaganda when they start talking about the black brood and black men wasn't doing none of that. You had black men that owned land and they was mad because they had land. They was pissed off. I just told you that black people had more land down in Mississippi than we do now. We ain't got nothing now. I just told you that. We had it popping at one point in time. We had a lot going on. You know, considering the situation. You know, she actually was moving around during a time that she could be brutalized with ease. The media wasn't going to report blonde and present getting her a black bed buck. The town didn't want that out, that their blue eyed whores was laying up with Negroes. Becky out there cheating on her husband with a black man. They ain't want that out there. But I'd have broke the cases. See, the world wouldn't see those files. You would just take their word of the masochist media and Ida wasn't going to stand for it. She found out and brought the receipts. See, that's why y'all need to check out medical apartheid. When they start talking about medical journals, you could go back up to the 1800s and 1900s where they say, yeah, uh, we had a black woman in here and we just ripped open her vagina. We didn't give her no uh, medicine or, you know, they used to do stuff like that. They could freely write in medical journals because they know black folks ain't going to be reading it. So just like I'm talking to you normal, they could say it's some BS. They could say anything. Oh, you know, that black brute. Uh, we just ripped his balls off. And, you know, they could say anything. It was normal. They, there was no law and order. They could do whatever they wanted. So when they wrote those medical journals, you looking at this like this is a horror movie. Like, did this really happen? It's so horrific. You you don't even believe it happened almost. But that's what they used to do. So they didn't really want to hear nobody talking about, well, this is a black man sleeping with a white woman. Like they looked at the white men, the white women like they were pure. They could be the sluttiest whores on the face of the galaxy. E.T. phone home wouldn't even want to touch them. But they they made them look so pure they couldn't even fathom. Oh, well, this is a, a black man consensual. Oh, no, he raped her. This could never be consensual. So they wanted to protect her, whether she was slutty or not. And from time to time, if you read the report, you'll see that some white women left town because they didn't want to disgrace their family. You know, you had one white dude, he committed suicide. So, you know, this whole black brute thing that that was all propaganda. You know. Quote, Wells was one of those driven people who never looked to the left or the right. If something needed to be said or done, she just goes and does it, said Paula Giddings, the Elizabeth A. Woodson, 1922 professor in African-American studies, studies at Smith College. In an interview with the NPR, The Root, she quote, she doesn't worry about the consequences. Let me ask you a question on the Bagland podcast tonight. Do the plantation media Negroes that are so popular right now, is that their character? Is that their character? No, it is not. 
She followed up and I read some of this today, which is incredible. She followed up with greater research and detail in the Red Record in 1895, a 100-page pamphlet describing lynching in the United States since the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out how did she go. I mean, I know what she did, but just going, getting all this information. Because remember, when they used to lynch people, they published this. Like, they were happy about it. So, you know, getting the information wasn't hard to do. I just want everybody to really sit back and wheel back and close your eyes and think about it. They, they would publish a black person getting strung up weeks in advance. Come one, come all like it's a circus and they'd have children and women and men and they torture the man all day, strip his skin off, burn him, lynch him. And then once they got done, they carve him up like Turkey and they'd hand out his bones and did all that type of stuff. So she was going into places like this people. I want y'all to understand how severe this was. I don't think you guys understand what was going on. I really don't think you guys get it. She was going into places where that just happened, going in asking questions. So people was probably looking at her like, we'll string you up down here, Negro. And she still went down there wasn't a scared Negro like these bed buck bed winch niggas on Fox news and, 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 and seeing it, seeing in fake, fake news. They ain't, she wasn't like them. She wasn't like them at all. Now the, the report, it also covered black people's struggles in the South since the Civil War. The Red Record explored the alarmingly high rates of lynching in the United States, which was a peak from 1880 to 1930. Now, I just told y'all that during this time, black folks was getting it popping. They were trying to get their rights. They own land. They were doing for themselves. You had Tulsa going on. So this was them basically saying, man, look, y'all, we going to have to get rid of y'all because you can't work for free. So Wells Barnett said that during Reconstruction, most Americans outside the South did not realize the growing rate of violence against black people in the South. She believed that during slavery, white people had not committed as many attacks because of the economic labor value of the slaves. Wells noted that since slavery time, 10,000 Negroes have been killed in cold blood through lynching without the formality of judicial trial and legal execution. So again, look at Rosewood. And other places where black folks had enclaves of some economic pro pro uh, pro prosperity. The logic was, you Negroes ain't working for free. We gonna have we gonna have to put them in their place. We used to have you as slaves. Now we depend on free labor, and you uppity Negroes want a piece of the land that is owed to you. So we will get string you up. We're angry because we're broker than before. So let's lynch you, let's rape you, let's run you out of town, and let's use D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation to keep the fire going. Propaganda works. The black brute will rise again, so let's saddle up and eradicate these Negroes. We could steal their land, just like we did before, and we could say he raped a white woman, whether he did it or not. Now, we know he didn't do it, but Jerome over there, he got 50 acres of land, and we want it. And if he did do it, we could rape, pillage, and get rid, rid of the rest of the blacks, and they could suffer our harsh hand. We are white and white women must be protected. Whores or not. We don't care if it was consensual. There is no consent when a black brute becomes a bed buck. That was the logic. Now, Frederick Douglass had written an article noting the three errors of Southern barbarism and excuses that whites claimed in each period. Now, Wells, she explored this in detail in the red record. She expounded upon it. 
on these three subjects. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first, during slavery time, she noted that whites worked to repress and stamp out alleged race riots or, or suspected slave rebellions, usually killing black people in far higher proportions than any white casualties. Once the Civil War ended, white people feared black people who were the majority in many areas. White people acted to control them and suppress them by violence. The second, during the Reconstruction era, White people lynched black people as part of mob efforts to suppress black political activity and reestablish white supremacy after the law. They feared Negro domination through voting and taking office. Wells urged black people in high risk areas to move away to protect their families. So it was probably certain areas that, that, that you were hearing these reports. She noted that whites frequently claimed that black men had to be killed to avenge their assault upon women. She noted that white people assumed that any relationship between a white woman and a black man was, was result of rape. But given power relationships, it was much more common for white men to take sexual advantage of poor black women. That's a fact. If I own you, I could do anything to you. And as the late, late great Dick Gregory says, if you can own somebody, you could rape a chicken. If you could own a slave or an enslaved person, you could do anything. There's nothing in this life you won't do if you could own another human being. She stated, nobody in this section of the country believes the old threadbare lie that black women rape white women. Wells connecting lynching to sexual violence, showing how the myth of the black man's lust for white women led to the murder of African-American men. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wells gave 14 pages of statistics. I started reading that today. Incredible. The red record of Ida B. Wells was nothing less than incredible. It's probably one of the best reports in the planet. She gave 14 pages of statistics relating to lynching cases committed between 1892 and 1895. <coughs> Excuse me. Need a little water. Pardon me. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, she also included pages of graphic accounts detailing specific lynchings. She notes that her data was taken from articles by white correspondents, white press bureaus, or boroughs, I'm sorry, and white newspapers. The Red Record was a huge pamphlet and had far reaching influence in the debate about lynching. Southern whores, lynch law, and all its phases in the Red Records accounts of these lynchings grabbed the attention of the Northerners who knew little about lynching or accepted the common explanation that black men deserve this fate. Now, let me say this in bold. Generally, Southern states and white juries refused to indict any perpetrators for lynching, although they were frequently known and sometimes shown in the photographs being made more frequently of such events. So this is what was going on. You see these photos people grinning and nobody got arrested. That's the level of justice we're talking about. You had no protection of the law as a black person during these times, just like now. Did you hear me? Just like now. Did you know, do you know what would happen if a dozen black men grabbed a white man, stripped him and tied them to a tree and set him on fire? And 3,000 more black folks sat there and took pictures. The National Guard would be out. They would have the army from other planets. This has never happened on planet Earth in recorded history. This has occurred hundreds of times to black men, women, and children. So if you could say that, that means that everyone down there was on code. It was the religion. White supremacy is a religion. 
This was a way of life to ambush. Now, these are ambush terrorists. So let's be clear. The white supremacist was the first terrorist in this country. You know, their, their logic is, you know, we can admit we can commit ambush murders to any black person. We say evidence or not and burn him in front of thousands. OK, and you could go free, Harpo. You had you had white men. You had white men going around raping children. You seen time to kill white men raping children, rape, raping women. They were raping black men on the plantation. I think I'm going to open up the, the red record and I'm going to read a few. I'm going to read a few of the statistics down here on the red record. It's 10 chapters. I'm going to read a couple different things of what, what Ida B. Wells said. Let's go down here and see what she says. Actually, I'm going to go to the stats. Now, they have all different types of stuff. It says this is a, a record published in the Chicago Tribune, January 1st, 1894. The following computation of lynching stats is made referring only to the colored victims of lynch law during the year 1893. I mean, I'm looking at all these different names. I'm looking at names. Um, they got men. They got women. Uh, thieves. B uh, barn burning. Alleged murder. Uh, Self-defense. Poisoning. Wells. No offense. Suspected murder, suspicion of rape, rape. Uh, I mean, they had somebody that just, they might've insulted a white person and they strung him up. I mean, this is, th th that's what I'm trying to tell y'all. You know, you got people running around talking about what black folks don't deserve and this, that, and all that garbage. Look what happened to us. We deserve more than anyone on in this damn country. This country owes us more than anyone in this country for what happened to us and what we've done for this country. I'm going to let y'all look at the red report on your own. She was a human data machine, a 20th century data scientist. Now, despite her attempt to garner support among white Americans against lynching, she believed that her campaign could not overturn the economic interests whites had used in using lynching as an instrument to maintain Southern order and discourage black economic ventures. Ultimately Wells concluded that appealing to reason and compassion would not succeed in gaining criminalization of lynching by Southern whites. In so many words, praying, begging and asking won't work. White supremacy doesn't respect sympathy and scared weeping Negroes. She concluded that perhaps let's underline this for all you nonviolent ass niggas. She concluded that perhaps armed resistance was the only defense against lynching. Meanwhile, she extended her efforts to gain the support of such uh, powerful white nations as Britain to shame and sanction the racist practice of America. So she said the hell with all this soft shoeing and cowardice, grab you some poles and defend yourself. It's your God given right to be alive and not brutalized. Did you hear her say March? Did you hear her say ask? Notice that she kept pushing and she used outside forces to sanction the country. So imagine this. You have a woman having to appeal to countries thousands of miles away because these redneck murdering crackers down here can't give up their lust for black flesh. They enjoyed burning and lynching black men, women, and children. Look at the photos. They took pride in it. 
They enjoyed cutting off fingers, selling postcards. It was a sport. It was a religion. It was a sport to murder black people. Quote, it is with no pleasure that I have dipped my hands in the corruption here exposed. Somebody must show that the Africa, African-American race is more sinned against than sinning. And it seems to have fallen upon me to do so. She said that in 1892. This was like Jon Snow. I don't want to be king. I don't want to be the king of the north. But this duty is bestowed upon me. It must be done. I don't enjoy it. I don't want it. It's dreary. It's sad. But we're going to go to work anyway. She could have quit. She could have just sat back with a newspaper job and overlooked it all. You know, she's looking at it like it's not about what I want. It's about the race and what, what must be done. I have the adamantium backbone and I'm going to do it. And I don't care about how people feel about it. Do you think she gave a damn how Sarah or these white feminists that were concerned about just getting white women to vote? Do you think she cared about how they felt? Do you think they cared about, do you think she cared about the scared coon ass Negroes telling her to be quiet? If she cared, she would have never wrote the reports. Well, you know, Ida, you too radical. You gonna get us killed. We scared. You getting killed anyway. Coon ass nigga. You getting killed anyway. That's what she, that's why she wrote the report. You're getting killed anyway. I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. The reason I don't know, I don't know for the full extent with W Du Bois and all that, but the reason why some of those like Booker T and them, what they probably did is they probably had some white paymasters. I don't know, but I think they had some white folks that might have been greasing their pockets, some donors or something. And Ida was basically saying, I'm not going to compromise for a check. And niggas start talking, to, talking on some sambo shit, telling her that she needs to calm down. You know, don't go too hard in the reports. All that old, all that old coon talk, that old Sambo plantation talk like we still on a plantation. I, I, I think that's what they was telling her. I don't know, but that's what it sounds like to me. A lot of the people that were telling her not to do stuff and do that, those were the plantation Negroes talking. They want to tell you to be a coward because you ain't one and they are. Now, here's what Ida B. Wells said about scared Negroes. One had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or a rat in a trap. Let's be clear. Many of the scared Negroes were dudes. Grown men telling her to be scared. There was a black newspaper editor that suggested that the public should muzzle that animal from Memphis. This is a black newspaper, a plantation operative for show. Can you imagine risking your limbs and you got black folks telling you to be quiet? Can you imagine the pain of losing your parents, losing your home, documenting brothers and sisters being brutalized in broad daylight as your assignment? Do you know what kind of courage and mind state you must have and tell the truth? Now think about the climate she was in. She rarely had any men that had the nuts to stand with her. These dudes didn't want to support her. You had the black media coons, you had white supremacists, and she was a woman by herself with her pistol and her paper in the Jim Crow era. This is against all odds. She had no friends for a while. Now, she traveled to Britain in her campaign against lynching the first time in 1893 and the second in 1894. 
She and her supporters in America saw these tours as an opportunity for her to reach larger white audiences with her anti-lynching campaign, something she had been unable to accomplish in America. She found sympathetic audiences in Britain already shocked by reports of lynching. So Britain, they probably looking at it like, damn, they stringing y'all up like that over there. They probably didn't know it was like that. They probably heard of reports. Let's let's be clear. The UK and Portugal and, you know, a lot of these other places in Europe, they had their share. King Leopold. But I'm just saying during that time, maybe they were looking at it like, well, damn, we didn't know. Like this supposed to be land of the free. People didn't travel like they used to like people didn't travel back then like they do now. You might be staying out there in Tupelo, Mississippi. You may not go to California. You might stay in Mississippi your whole life. People didn't move around until the highway system started getting popping. So she went to the UK and the white folks over there um, that would give her constructive help. These people were likely not participants of the system of racism, white supremacy in America. People. This goes to show more evidence on how sick and preferred that these white fiends in America were. She had to leave town to convince the world that we were going through a genocide. Let's be clear. All these lynchings were a genocide, a 400 year concentration camp, genocide, economic genocide, sexual genocide, spiritual genocide, cultural genocide. Now she was invited to her first British speaking tour by Catherine Impey and Isabella five V Mayo. Impey, a Quaker abolitionist who published the journal Anti-Cast, had attended had attended several of Wells' lectures while traveling in America. Mayo was a well-known writer and a poet who wrote under the name of Edward Garrett. Both women had read of the particularly gruesome lynching of Henry Smith in Texas and wanted to organize a speaking tour to call attention to American lynchings. They asked Frederick Douglass to make the trip, but citing his age and health, he declined. He then suggested Wells... Um, who enthusiastically accepted the invitation. So she went over there and hollered at them. In 1894, before leaving the U.S. for her second visit to Great Britain, Wells called on William Penn Nixon, the editor of Daily Interocean. It was a Republican newspaper in Chicago. It was the only white major paper that persistently denounced lynching. After she told Nixon about her planned tour, he asked her to write for the newspaper while in England. She was the first African-American woman to be a paid correspondent for the mainstream white media. Let's put some extra respect on her name. She was the first. They don't note that in the history books. And I'm going to say something that you guys ain't going to like, but I'm going to say it because you're on the Bagland podcast. Have you ever noticed that the black folks that were anti-coon to the bone don't get the recognition and the reverence. Have you ever noticed that? Now she toured England, Scotland, Wales for two months, addressing audiences of thousands, rallying a moral crusade among the British. She relied heavily on her pamphlets, Southern whores in her first tour and showed shocking photographs of actual lynchings in America. On May 17, 1894, she spoke in Birmingham at the young men's Christian assembly and at central hall and staying in how do you say this egg, uh, egg Baston at 66 go road somewhere in England? I believe it is as, as a result of her two lecture tours in Britain, she received significant coverage in the British and American press. Many of the articles published at the time of her return were hostile personal critiques rather than reports of her anti lynching positions. 
Does that sound familiar? Well, let's try to get old. Let's basically try to assassinate our character, but we're not going to say nothing about this nigga, these niggas getting strung up. Now, the New York Times, for example, called her a slanderous and a nasty minded molotress. Despite these attacks in the white press, Wells had nevertheless gained extensive recognition and credibility and an international audience of white supporters of her cause. So the mainstream megalomaniac, the, the, the mainstream megalomaniac uh, masochist media, they attacked her for exposing the Harpos and the Ed Bucks. They attacked her for exposing the Epsteins and the Dylan Roofs. Now the media and the Cape Coon, now the media and the Cape Coon, the Cape Coon Crusaders, they're attacking black men for putting the microscope on white sex predators. Does this sound familiar? No matter the attacks, Ida had admiration and respect for the work. Her work was global. Now, black folks at the time, they had more respect away from home than back at home. Now, that shows how patriotic this country is. And she wasn't doing this for self-esteem. She knew she wasn't bigger than the program. Adamantium Ida wasn't no George Soros manufactured Negro worried about who she sleeps with. Her concern was black first and not and her, her concern was black first and the race, not gender. The black first was in more important than gender. Let's be clear. She was concerned about the women, black women getting a vote, but black first was her concern. Let's make that very clear. Black men and women were her concern. The New York Times quote at a time when women still did not have the vote and black Americans were fighting for basic civil rights. Miss Wells, outspoken and passionate, refused to live within the roles defined for people like her. Three decades before Rosa Parks was born, Wells was arrested after refusing to give up her seat in a whites only railroad car and then took her case all the way to the Supreme Court where she lost. She was a feminist long before it was popular and a race woman when the leadership of the growing civil rights organizations at the time were res- were resoundingly male. Now, listen to this, because you got to be very careful at how some of these mainstream media articles ca- try to r- try to throw you with that intersectionality garbage and all that. She refused to be sidelined. It's the New York Times saying this. She refused to be sidelined by white feminist organizations, which worried that working for the equality of black women would slow down progress on rights for white women and was marginalized by organizations such as the NAACP, which she helped founded. A sharp tongued career woman uninterested in being tied down. Miss Wells had many suitors before meeting her match. In Mr. Barnett, a lawyer, a race man and a fellow feminist. Still, once she agreed to marry, she postponed the wedding three times in order to keep up with her rigorous anti-lynching speaking schedule. When the day finally came, the 27th of June, 1895, the event was fitting for an icon. The interest of the public in the affair seemed to be so great that not only was the church filled to overflowing, but the streets surrounded the church was so packed with humanity that it was almost impossible for the carriage bearing the wedding bridal power to writing party to reach the church door, which she wrote this in her autobiography. So let's analyze this. So before she got married, she had suitors. She had people that was interested, but she had to make sure that the person that she was dealing with was on code. 
So before she got married, she said, Negro, black empowerment is more important to the black empowerment is more important to me than you are more important to me. It is a privilege to be with me and I'm pushing the wedding back to deal with black empowerment. And if you can't do that, I can find someone else. I love you, but black people are first. That's what that means. I I'm going to marry you, but black people are first. Do you get that? Is that ringing through your ears? I'm going to get married, but the race is first. So I'm pushing the marriage back. And if you don't like it, you could go to hell. Now, I don't know if she said that, but that's that's probably what she said. And he knew it and he was OK with that. Because, you know, he was they say he was a race man, too. OK. The Chicago Tribune quoted Wells Barnett campaign for women's rights to vote and refused to be sidelined by white women's activists in the movement. She organized a campaign to elect Chicago's first black alderman and ran for state Senate in 1930. See, your white feminists did not keep the same energy for black women. Just like now, black women get the least while they get out there on the front lines for minorities and white women and other, these other fabricated groups, people of color and everyone else. They benefit and Ida, Ida wasn't having it. Now history repeats itself. I got a question. Are the white feminists as a group speaking up for black mortality rates and black women dying? The answer is no. Sarah as a whole is not. The evidence shows this. Not one white, not no, not one white woman here and there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about as a group. I'm talking about 70% or more white women saying, hey, you know, black women are wronged. The foundational black women that put in the work and labored in the soil so we could get the benefits are not getting the most constructive help. So let's take a look at Frances E. Willard. Let's look at this heifer. She was a soldier out there getting white women the right to vote. Now, right here to Willard, giving women the right to vote was the only way to rid the U.S. of evils of intemperance. She couched this view in the organization's mission of home protection. It was a view that garnered her much support within the WCTU, which had 250,000 members and chapters just in every state. Now, listen to this. She was even willing to court white Southern women at the expense of blacks, even though her parents had been abolitionists. Quote. Better whiskey and more of it is the rallying cry of great dark face mobs. Willard said in an 1890 interview with the New York voice, the safety of white women of childhood of the home is menaced is menaced menaced in a thousand localities. So she's saying that black folks just want to drink. They want to drink and they want to rape white women and children. That's what she was saying. That statement and others incensed Wells. She was angered even more by the fact that Willard was considered to be a friend within the black community, in part because of some of the, the WCTU chapters had accepted black women as members. But the WCTU president unhesitant, unhesitantly slandered the entire Negro race in order to gain favor with those who were hanging, shooting and burning Negroes alive, Wells said in her autobiography. 
Crusade for Justice. We all buy that book on Amazon. Her daughter had to finish it post human, uh, you know, after she died in the 70s called Crusade for Justice. See, Ida wasn't willing to keep quiet and let our so-called white allies act as pivots and desk lamps and pretend. She was moving furniture around, shaking some tables. This is the same thing going on with these women marches and these bullshit minority collisions where black women's history is used so they could get benefits. Ask the Me Too black women. They were Me Tooing black women when, and they are Me Tooing a black woman now. This was in the Jim Crow days. Now, fast forward another 50 years later, they still got white women in corporate and corporate grassroots running around talking about equality, using black women as a token bridges to their rising tide to lift their yachts. They wanted Ida to be the diversity and inclusion Negro mascot, and she told them to go to hell. They thought she was going to sit back and let this pale heifer talk down on black people, act like an ally, and think Adamantium Ida was going to let it ride. She obviously didn't know her too well, but she was going to learn soon. So again, we have white women using black folks, and when it's time to provide the same energy and benefits, it's not a two-way street. NPR quoted, and I paraphrase, quote, so Ida went to Britain and quoted the anti-black comments that this white woman feminist said. And it got published even though Lady Somerset didn't want it printed. Somerset then even sent Frederick Douglass a telegram to keep Adamantium Ida in line. Douglass said, hell no, you hold your own nuts on that. But they say that Douglass might have got scared later and he didn't do much, much else to support her overseas. So you see what they do. She said something. These white women said something out of pocket. Super out of pocket. About black folks and Ida B. Wells checked them on it. They tried to stop the report from getting published when she was over there and it was too late. So they're going to call up Frederick Douglass and say, oh, well, you know, Ida's over here because they knew Ida was was a factor. Ida's over here. Talk about me. And, you know, I don't want to ruin my name. And Ida and, and, Fred and Douglass said, hey, that's on you. These little co-and-tell-pro games they play. The power of the press and its limitations. Quoting NPR. Now, Lady Somerset and Willard were not done. Pushing to publicly embarrass Wells in the press, the pair arranged for another Willard interview with the Westminster Gazette, a London newspaper. Now, this time it was conducted by Somerset, who gave Willard a platform for her version. So these heifers, these white supremacists were working on code. Now, this is Sarah and every barbecue Sarah working in cahoots. If this Negro doesn't bend the knee, we will backdoor her. Now, white women do this to sisters that work all the time to this day. Ida ain't keeping her in line. So let's keep let's Ida ain't staying in line. So let's double team her and and see if she'll fall back. Now, Willard talked about her family background and expressed concern for the plight of black people. But she also stated that the best people I know are in the South. She said the best people I knew in the South had told her that black people were threatening the safety of white women and children. So even though when she was trying to get on Ida, she going to say something slick again about black people saying that the best people that she the best people she knew in the South. Now, she's supposed to be one of these, you know, uh, you know, women with a lot of money and all this. So if you knew the best people in the South, who are the best people in the South? If you got money and you know, people in the South that got money, what, what money, what was the platform that you used to get that money? The best people you knew in the South were white supremacists and slave owners, sharecroppers, 
and you say that black people were threatening the safety of white women. These are Southerners telling you this and you're in London. She continued. It is not fair that a plantation Negro who can neither read or write should be entrusted with the ballot. That's what she said. So this is that crooked. This is that crooked Hillary super predator talk. Black roots are raping white women every five seconds a day. We need a 94 crime bill. If they can't read, they can't vote. In so many words, we don't want them to vote. Stay in your position and keep in place. The best people are likely the Jim Crow Bobs and the Sat Satanist Sarahs. She was talking to the white people who subverted and mistreated blacks. Those were the people calling for lynching of black women and babies. Those were the people abducting black people. And this demon thought Ida wasn't going to say nothing. Also note that she didn't have anything to say about the grandfather clauses that white men got in the South. Of course, those who could not read nor write. She took no issue with Billy Bob doing it. But Jerome, Jerome, if he can't read or write, he shouldn't be able to vote. So remember, she said, I know the best people in the South that say that they're raping white women and children. She says she knows the best people in the South, but then turns around and says, well, black folks don't need to vote if they can't read nor write. But she didn't say anything about the grandfather clauses that Billy Bob that can't read a lick. He should be able to vote. Now, other publications, including the Memphis commercial, weighed in with statements against Wells' character. The commercial examined her career, painting the saddle-colored Safara from Holly Springs, Mississippi as a harlot. The newspaper also stated that Wells was pushing her foul and slanderous outbursts on the British. So this is more anti-black mainstream media attacks, calling her a prostitute. Now, this sister was a teacher, a writer. She wasn't a red-light district whore. She wasn't Pamela Anderson. And even if she was, she did more than any one of these VH1 sluts will ever do. Look at the common person on TV and, and compare them to Ida, to Ida B. Wells. Ain't no comparison. So they said, well, let's let's attack Adamantium Ida because she's a factor. Let's find a way to downgrade her power and influence. You know, remember, they were already angry about that, that first report. If it wasn't true, they wouldn't have tried to silence her. They were angry that the Harpos and the Ed Bucks were getting exposed and you have a sophisticated and a calculated black woman doing it. See, you got a sister here that's telling black folks, hey, listen, you're in Memphis getting lynched. Take your six thousand, six thousand of y'all and y'all get down to Oklahoma, set up, a, set up a new shop, form something there. She hit the pockets of people. She was doing boycotts through her newspaper, through her pen. Now, even so, the media campaign didn't stop Wells. She lectured to audiences in London, was invited to dinner in the parliament, and before she headed home, helped Londoners establish the London Anti-Lynching Committee. Forming this group was a clear victory to Wells and the anti-lynching crusade. It, com it comprised some of the most influential editors, ministers, college professors, and members of parliament. To Wells' surprise, even white supremacist Lady Somerset joined the committee and Willard, of all people, was among the Americans who also signed on. So she forced these pale vampire nosed Beckys to get on board. They had to get on cold with the other whites. They submitted to her power after the clergy, the men of means, professors and everyone else had to get on board. This is Sarah and Blonde and present going along or, or getting shut down. Don't think that they wanted to either. They had to comply. The forces of nature and Ogun were at hand. With the victory in hand, Wells set, set sail for home after a four-month campaign. She later wrote in her autobiography that the moment was not only a boomerang to Miss Willard, 
It seemed to appeal to the British sense of fair play. So the British folks were like, all right, they didn't do like the Americans. See, in Britain, they were probably looking at it like, okay, these two white supremacist women were basically trying to knock Ida off her game. But Ida had the truth. They couldn't knock her off her game. Too much influence. So the British is saying that, hey, we appeal to fair play. You getting dirty with her. She's coming back with the facts and the truth. Now, Ida said, here were two prominent white women joining hands in an effort to crush an insignificant colored woman who had neither money nor influence. Nothing but the power of truth with which to fight her battles. They couldn't they couldn't go against that. See, Ida had to look in the mirror. She ain't like these mainstream sambos that you see every day stuttering and stammering. She had to look in the mirror and she could look in the mirror. The truth prevailed. Ida wasn't balling out of control. Her her focus was justice and black empowerment. She knew in order to fight white supremacy, you had to be willing to stand up and die if required. That set a tone for other black folks, even the coons. People. This is indicative of what is occurring now. Ida set the tone for what the media does. Look at how it reports black people. Look at what she has done for us. Foundational blacks, native blacks, the descendants of slaves. Ida should be the flagship of black empowerment as an icon for us. They should have a statue of Ida B. Wells. Down in Puerto Rico, they say they got a statue of Barack. Knock it over. Put Ida up. She doesn't have the coverage. Uh... She, she didn't have the coverage. So, uh, what I got here. Yeah, she, she doesn't have the coverage that she should. So every few weeks or months, I think I'm going to do a, a, a series exposing the masochistic media in the name and the spirit of Adamantium Ida. The danger we now have now is plantation operatives that look like us. And they're joining in the hands of other groups to undermine the native blacks. Now, the dead black media is one of them. Have you ever noticed they don't mention Adamantium Ida, Ida B. Wells? They rarely mention her. And if they do with some whitewashed quasi sambo account of small bits and pieces, their white paymasters probably won't allow it. Women's rights, gender, not black empowerment, not tangibles, just horizontal issues. So let's go through this timeline and keep in mind what era we were in that Ida was. So she was born 1862, right before black folks were so-called free. 1888, 22 years of age, she became a teacher, went to Memphis. 1883, she was removed from the car on the train. She fought the guy, bit him on the arm, refused to get off before Rosa Parks. Let's be very clear. In 1884, she sued the railroad, won $500, which was a lot back then. December 24th, 1884, 1885, the white supremacists got on code and the Supreme Court overturned it. And this was, again, this was before Plessy versus Ferguson. In 1892, she published The Southern Horrors, 30 years old. Um, she was about 30 years old when they published that. And I think I really want to find out what all Southern states she went to. Because I, I, I don't know, maybe she traveled. I, I got to find out some more information about that. I got to get the autobiography. In Britain, she went to, she went to Britain in 1893. Uh, I forgot to get this date, but then she attended the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. 
So that probably was around 1893 to 1894, 1895. And she went to Britain again in 1894. She married to the journalist, uh, the brother that was an attorney in 1895, told him, I'm going to push this, this marriage back because black empowerment is first. Uh, you know, Douglas, Frederick Douglass died in 1895 and Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois thought she was too radical. And that just means she wasn't scared. That's all that meant. Then she released the red record in 1895. 1900, she fought for school segregation. She fought against school segregation. Now let's, let's keep in mind of the times here. 1915 birth of a nation that came out February 8th. So, so birth of a nation came out in 1915. It broke the box office. It was the first blockbuster first shown by Woodrow Wilson's white supremacist ass. Woodrow Wilson, the same person that refused to allow immigrants to come in and foundational black Americans told African immigrants, you have to let them in. Let's be very clear. We let the African immigrants in when Woodrow Wilson told you, hell no. 1919 was the red summer. That was all the white supremacist terrorist attacks. That's when they really start stringing black folks up and doing all that. It was I mean, they've been stringing us up. But the red summer, y'all should look that up. 1917, the government put uh, Ida B. Wells under surveillance and she was working with Marcus Garvey, Madam C.J. Walker, putting in work. Um, 1921, she went back to the South and reported on the Elaine race riot in Arkansas. The white supremacists were going down, down there, killing and murdering and ambushing black folks down there. 1921, the Tulsa race riots happened. More white supremacists that was angry that black folks was was getting the bag and rest in peace. She died in 1931. Let's keep in mind, this was years before Emmett Till was abducted and murdered. 21, 24 years later, Medgar Evers was ambushed and assassinated in 1963. I'm giving you a brief visual of what native black folks was going, was, was dealing with. Ida was a giant. She deserves much more respect and reverence. Ida reported like no one reported before. And she wasn't trying to be polite about it. Sometimes giants are overshadowed and more famous people, in my opinion, who did much less is more revered. Ida B. Wells is nothing less than a godsend. I think the creator truly sent her down to us. These are the people we should revere, not no shucking and jiving, famous and terrified Negro. And when black folks hold think tanks and conferences, you should showcase these people. Showcase Ida B. Wells. Not twerking whores and show monkeys. The Guardian quoted when Wells died in 1931 at the age of 68 from a brief illness due to kidney failure. Her influence was waning. Her autobiography, her autobiography, her her autobiography was unfinished and her ambition of a federal anti-lynching law was unrealized. Duster muses, quote, she went out with a whimper. She was almost obsolete. She writes in her autobio that there was a generation who didn't know who she was and didn't know about lynching. She wrote the book to stop it being forgotten. Well, Ida B. Wells, I will never forget. As long as there is corruption, as long as there is a system of racism, white supremacy and suspect and suspected plantation operatives, I will keep your name alive. I will make sure my legacy knows and respects your name. And if I hear anyone say anything out of pocket on your name, they can answer to me and a fight might go with that.